Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I am a high school junior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. With me today, I have Maya Mishra, a junior at Princeton currently studying ecology and evolutionary biology, pursuing a certificate in planets and life. And today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the eyes of biology. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around, so please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it is time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, so let's get started onto today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of biology. Maya, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you on. Let's take a minute and please share with the listeners your journey through bio and how you got interested in astronomy. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think I've always really been fascinated by the diversity of life on this planet. We have so much. You breathe it in, you breathe it out every day. It seems kind of normal. Uh, You're surrounded by all these different types of organisms. But when you really think about it, it's kind of amazing that life started from these single molecules, these single cells, and evolved into what it is today. And that's kind of what led me to be an evolutionary biology major. But I've always really been fascinated by outer space, of course. I remember I used to take my dogs out at night, and I would just be sitting there looking up at the stars. And I, I'm just awed by how small it makes us seem. And... I think the combination of the diversity of life and kind of thinking about that on a universal scale was really fascinating. So it's a big part of the reason I decided to come to Princeton is because I can study that um, through the Planets and Life program, and I've had a great experience so far. It's been a fascinating journey. Awesome. And I completely agree with you that that seems like a very logical combination of the two, and that's fascinating. I'm really excited to discuss your perspective as a biologist. You know, people often separate physics and biology into two distinct fields, but as I'm sure you've explored in your experiences so far, they're interlinked far more than one might expect. So to discuss this topic, I've curated a series of questions about your journey through bio, as well as to discuss the overlap between these two fields. So... Let's begin. So you've made an interesting combination of science and studying both biology and astronomy. And, you know, astrobiology is a fascinating field, but not one that a lot of people know about. So what about these two sciences fascinates you the most? Um, Why do you keep doing it other than like your initial motivation to start studying these two? Um, I think what interests me specifically about astrobiology is we can kind of get a look back at where we came from as humans Um, and and life in general, but humans especially, and how we depend so much on this planet of ours and its specific um, temperature, its air quality, its distance from the sun, how much we rely on those kind of physical characteristics of the planet as well as the star that we orbit. Um, That's fascinating. We wouldn't be here if our sun... I mean, maybe we wouldn't be here. Maybe a totally different form of life would be here if our sun was a little hotter or a little smaller or we orbited a little bit farther away. And I think that look back as an evolutionary biologist is just really fascinating. I like that enormous scale of things. And I think it's important for us to remember, you know, as we 
as humans, as we change the climate, we are also making the planet kind of head away from this set that we've evolved to adapt to and, ha- and all other life on Earth has evolved to adapt to. That's a really good point. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't normally think about, right? Like, for example, a lot of climate change deniers may not be thinking that the reason that they exist in the first place is because the Earth is in a particular set of very specific factors, um, all kinds of crazy stuff. They don't understand that what they're doing could potentially disrupt that balance. Um, So I think that's definitely a message that should be gotten across to the public more. So what is kind of the most fascinating overlap that you've seen between astronomy and biology? Mm, I think I'm really fascinated by extremophile life, which are these organisms, mostly single cells, um, but sometimes a little bigger, that exist at these super extreme places on Earth. So you can find life Pretty much anywhere on Earth you can think of, there's probably life there. There, We've got life at the bottom of the ocean in hydrothermal vents that are incredibly hot and under an incredible amount of pressure. Um, There's life all over Antarctica where it's freezing um, and in these certain spots on Earth where the the ozone layer is a little thinner and there's really high radiation. There's life there too. And that's just fascinating to me that life can, life has evolved. Life is so tenacious that it can exist at these incredibly inhospitable areas. And, you know, it gives me, it's just fascinating to think about how life elsewhere in the universe, hypothetically, um, might've evolved to fit a really different set of characteristics. Um, and, and, you know, it's really intriguing because I think if life can do that on earth, you know, why can't it do it elsewhere is, is always my thought. So you think that kind of the factors that we have on Earth contributed to life forming the way that it did here, it could be completely different elsewhere, for example, in the universe. Absolutely. Yeah. I think often, you know, I, I love Star Wars. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a huge space nerd. And I love Star Wars. But something that kind of itches at me every time I watch it is that all of the different alien life forms are all at, at their very basis. They're all humanoid. And I'm like, well, if life evolved somewhere else, there's no there's there's almost no chance that it would look exactly like us. I think life somewhere else would be vastly different, probably would communicate differently, process the the world differently than we do. And I think that's what makes finding it so difficult. If it is out there, it might be, you know, doing something totally different. It might not even process visible light in the same way as we do. So it might not be able to process images or sounds in the same way. Um, And that really impacts the way we look for it too. So I think that's a really fascinating aspect of it that I don't think often gets into the pop culture. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I always think of when I watch Star Wars. But I am up to date on the latest season of Mandalorian, nevertheless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think this reminds me of an XKCD comic in which essentially ants could be, you know, sentient and they could be intelligent, communicating through pheromones. But because we don't communicate the same way, we'd have no way of knowing and they'd have no way of telling us. So actually that provides really effective segue into our next question, which is kind of, you know, you think that like if extraterrestrial life develops, it's going to be very different from humanity. But what do you think are the likelihood of extraterrestrial life actually existing? And, you know, if not, like, or what forms do you think are most likely extraterrestrial life going to look like, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think... um... I don't know if you've discussed the Drake equation before here, which is kind of this equation that sets up a lot of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this equation, um, it's, it sets up like a number of factors 
that kind of aim to provide a rough estimate of the probability that there is intelligent life in the universe. Um, and I don't know, I did an, an exercise in one of my classes where we all kind of picked different values for these kind of numbers that you sub into the equation that we thought were appropriate. Um, everyone calculated out their probability. Most of us got zero, which would exclude us as intelligent life, of course. So I think it's really hard to put a number on estimating how likely life is out there. Um, I think something to keep in mind is that if there is life out there, it's probably either way more advanced than we are um, or way less advanced than we are. So we're looking for or we will be looked for by a really advanced civilization, or we're looking for microbes um, or really lower life forms, um, which are a lot more difficult to detect because they're probably not putting out uh, messages yet if they're at that level. So I think um, I, I think it's a pos- definitely a possibility that life could have evolved elsewhere, but it's more difficult to look for if you think about the fact that it probably evolved in a far different way than we did. That's true. Yeah. Um, so let's bring this topic of life kind of back home to like the solar system. So like a recent discovery, and I've mentioned about it in a blog article. So if you guys want to check that out, um, was made in which phosphine was discovered in the atmosphere of Venus, which is a key organic compound. So what are your thoughts about like the potential that this has for maybe life existing on Venus? Definitely. I think this was a really fascinating discovery. Uh, my friends and I in the, in the planets and life program were really geeking out about it. Um, but I think it's definitely important to remember that the science has pushed back on that a little bit and said that um, you know, this might not be accurate. I think the scientists did do a reanalysis of it, saying that they did detect phosphine, but the levels of it were far lower than they originally um, put out, which I think I, I would just say wait and see on it, because I think Venus is really, really inhospitable for life. And I think while it might life could exist kind of in those upper atmosphere levels, it's I don't want to say definitely. There's, there's no saying definitely about where life can exist, especially when we think about how far it's come on Earth. But I just feel like it's probably most likely not going to be on the surface. Um, and if we're looking at the atmosphere a little bit more, I think there's possibilities there. But I always say with actually discovering life, I will believe it when I see it for sure. Um, phosphine is definitely a really interesting step, but um, I don't want to, I'm going to suspend judgment there, I would say. That's fair. I feel like I also view it with a little bit of cautious optimism. So as we progress yeah, through this no decade, way. like the idea of a Mars mission is becoming like a lot more feasible. So what would you say from you know your perspective is the biggest obstacle that we're facing now for a manned mission to Mars? Um, this is a really interesting question. And I think I would boil it down to about two factors, one much more nebulous than the other. Uh, so I'll start with radiation. I think radiation is a huge obstacle to mission to Mars. It's one of the biggest things we're thinking about in terms of protecting the human body. Once you head out beyond those Van Allen belts, especially for the length of time that you know you need to get to Mars and back, um, we really are exposed to a lot more radiation than we're used to. And we haven't exactly found a good way to get around that. Um, we haven't found a good way to protect our astronauts from it. And I think that's going to be a really big issue. Um, a lot of folks I've talked to, so I'm a former intern in the office of the chief, chief health and medical officer at NASA. Um, and what my boss, Dr. Polk, would always say to me is that the people who are going to go first, um, they're going to face increased risk. So we might even we might head out without all the protection that we would like to have. And those astronauts are going to accept that risk, which is 
Obviously not ideal, but he always compares it to the exploration of the North and South Poles. We didn't back then have technology that we do now to make it safe. Those people came back in really bad shape, uh, to be honest. I mean, a lot of them died and a lot of them um, came back frostbitten and eating their dogs and eating other people. Maybe not that, but um, I think definitely that first mission to Mars is going to be difficult, um, especially if it happens sooner rather than later. Um, but that second factor is kind of goes into this. It's political will. Like, are we going to get the funding to, um, as I guess is NASA going to get the funding to send people to Mars? I don't know. I think that depends on the situation at the time. Um, I think looking at the private sector, that's really promising in terms of sending people to Mars, but also they definitely focus a lot more on the engineering side of it rather than the biological side. So I personally would love to see NASA do it. I would love to see it be an international effort. I would love um, kind of a diverse crew, and I would love that to be kind of a a human race type effort rather than like a few really rich people doing it um, for their company. But I think that's going to be a really big obstacle in terms of, of getting us there as, as people. That's true. Um, obviously, we'd like to avoid cannibalism on another planet. Um, and also, I think that... I, yeah, I would like to do. <laughs> um, also, I feel like an interesting connection to history here is that the reason that the Apollo mission did so well is because a lot of it was funded out of fear of the rise of the Soviet Union. So, you know, it's highly possible that we won't have a Mars mission until there is another space race, which is pretty bad on a geopolitical perspective, but maybe better for us from an astronomy perspective. Who knows? Um, So looking to the future, I think that we may eventually need to leave the planet at the rate that people are destroying it now. Um, So if it comes to that, what are your thoughts about, you know, finding another world out there for us to live on? Well, I'd like to think that we're going to reverse that a little bit and that the um, planet killer that will eventually come along will just be the sun's death um, and expansion, but which is way further off in the future than a climate death would be for us. Um, So I'd like to think that would be the case. But I think um, it's interesting because we are... We grew up on Earth. Uh, We are so perfectly adapted to Earth because this is where we evolved. I think it's very unlikely that we would ever find a place that is as amenable to life as Earth is, at least Earth life. Um, That's pretty unlikely because, you know, we're so, so specifically adapted to our planet, which makes perfect sense. Um, But I I do, I'm optimistic that we can find places that will um, be close to it. I think... Uh, the kids that eventually grow up there will not remember an earth, which is a little bit sad, but I think it'll, you know, we need oxygen atmosphere. We need nitrogen. We, we need the sun. Um, I'm assuming the crops and things that will grow there are probably going to be very different than earth crops. Cause again, you have that evolution issue, but it's very, very speculative at this point. I think, um, I can first remember thinking about this when I read the green book, which is a really, really short book about, um, this little girl who is sent off on a spaceship um, with another crew of humans to forge out a life on a new planet. And they have a lot of tough times. And it's it's pretty astrobiologically on the nose because it, it says how they struggle with growing crops. And they, cause they can't, because the earth crops are not, they don't want to grow in this new soil. They don't want to grow in this new area. And the gravity thing is a little bit different. We're not probably going to find an exact planet with 1G um, we'll find somewhere. It's not going to be quite Earth, but it will be somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, tying into what you mentioned about, you know, uh, astrobiology and popular culture, um, 
I think the main introduction that a lot of people may have gotten to astrobiology would be in The Martian, with the main character being an astrobotanist. So what's kind of your perspective on that portrayal, and how scientifically accurate would you say it is from your perspective? Mm, The Martian. I haven't thought about that one too much, because he's not really looking for native Martian life, I suppose. But it definitely... It it shows you how hard it's going to be, I think, is the most important lesson you can learn from the Martian. Like, living on Mars is not going to be a cakewalk. Like, that planet, from the moment you touch down, is going to be not, I mean, not sentient, not in a sentient way, but it's going to be trying to kill you. Like, it's cold, it's dusty, it is not going to be just like a fun time. Your bones are going to waste away because the gravity is a little bit less. Um, I wish they had shown... Mark Watney like doing a little bit more working out because he probably would have needed to but um yeah it's it's gonna be really really hard um we'll get there and I think technology especially at the rate that it's advancing um we'll we'll get there but I think going back to what I discussed about those first explorers the first settlers are going to have their own set of issues and it's going to be hard it's going to be settling um these new places going to be like humans going out of Africa and making their way in these, you know, new places. It's hard. A lot of people will probably die, um, which is a tough thing. But I think it's, it's kind of the name of the game. Mars is, Mars is not a fun place. Uh, but I think in the future, it's going to be hopefully normal. I have, I'm optimistic that it's going to be, um, normal at some point to be jaunting off to Mars for a few months or, you know, raising your kids there, but we'll see. Probably not in my lifetime or yours. We're about the same age. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to wrap it up, kind of, I wanted to tie back to the beginning where you said that one of the most fundamental questions that you considered when you were getting into astrobiology was like that question about where did we come from? So I was wondering if you wanted to kind of, you know, what's your view of the answer to this question? What's what's your opinion on, like, where do you think that we came from as a species? Where did life originate from on Earth? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think what we learn, at least, um, is that oceans, oceans were really critical. The fact that water has a high specific heat, you're not going to be able to freeze or boil it really easily. And when you do freeze it, um, ice is going to float on the top, so your water in the bottom is good to stay liquid. Life can keep evolving there. Um, I think the most compelling portrayal I tend to think of is um, you have all these molecules kind of bouncing around, the primordial soup, um, and finally something smashes together is formed that can replicate itself, maybe really crudely. Um, But since it can copy itself, it starts making more of itself. And so that's when evolution starts to come along because when you can copy yourself, you're going to start taking over from the other molecules, even though these things, we wouldn't necessarily call them alive, um, but they're in competition. And so um, the molecule that can replicate itself the best is going to outcompete the others and make the most copies of itself. Um, And so I'm of the opinion that that becomes RNA. Uh, I think the RNA world is a really compelling hypothesis as well that um, we originally stored and cells in general originally stored their genetic material and catalyzed reactions with RNA. Um, and from RNA, we get eventually DNA and proteins. Um, and that all comes together in somehow it becomes a cell and those cells 
diverge into plant cells and little animal cells. And eventually one of those animals eats a plant cell and that becomes our mitochondria. Um, and you know, and then that just keeps going. We just, I mean, humans and even like more complex life are like the tiniest amount of time compared to the amount of time it took for cells to even become cells or multicellular organisms. It's just this really intricate, complex tapestry of a story of a life history uh, that humans and all other life has. And I don't know, it just, it makes me feel very lucky to be a complex organism because I could have existed. I could have been a, I don't know, a bacteria or an archaea back in the day, uh, but I'm a human. I am a very cool thing with a brain that can learn my own life history. Um, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. And I think the story, I'm excited to learn about the story of life on another world. If hopefully I get to learn that in my lifetime. I think the most striking kind of um, way to visualize it is that if you condense the entire history of the world into 24 hours, humans only appeared in the last second. Um, and I feel like that really puts into perspective kind of how <laughs> insignificant we are, like, in the grand scheme of things. But as you mentioned, it just, you know, hammers in the fact that we're lucky to be here as these kind of these intelligent life forms. So um, do you have any advice for, like, the students, astronomers or biologists who may be listening for the future? Yeah, I think, I don't know, just keep being curious, keep an eye on the news, watch what NASA is doing, watch what um, SpaceX, Blue Origin, watch what they're doing, um, see the science that they're doing, um, and look for places to step in. Send lots of cold emails. Uh, space people love talking about space. I am a space person. I love talking about space, and I know I have had a, real, a lot of good fortune in emailing people and I've had a lot of wonderful conversations about, um, people's life work. Um, and it's, it's such a welcoming area to be in. I think space people, um, have this, I, most of them have this perspective that we are, you know, we've got to get off planet. We, we, as a human race, this is something we have to do to advance ourselves. And I think, um, that makes them really generous with their time and just a wonderful group of people to work with and, and talk to. So yeah, reach out. Um, don't, don't be afraid to just like send that email, like do whatever. Um, and don't, and don't be like timid with that either. Like email people that are higher up. Like if you can find their emails, like send them an email. Um, maybe they won't respond. Maybe they won't. It's always a chance, but like do it anyway. Um, it can't hurt. Um, yeah. Just chase the position you want. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I hope you listeners are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. Um, is there anything that you want to plug such as social media or websites? Mm, I don't think so. I really like when I, I'm feeling a little bit down or just like thinking about this long path that I'm on. I like to go read the curiosity rover blog. It kind of, the scientists will every day kind of tell you what the robot's up to. And I think it's a really cute thing. And also just, it's exciting because you get to see the science happening in real time, real time. Um, but it's, it's cool. I love the curiosity rover blog. Check it out. Awesome. I will link that in the description. So thank you very much for coming on again. Listeners, if you have any questions, make sure to drop them off at www.skysimplified.com. And until next time, clear skies. The Sky Simplified podcast is created, hosted, produced, and edited by Pranet Sharma. The music is by Pranet Sharma. 
Thank you for listening. And as always, clear skies. Clear skies.